Hey everyone, this is Evan Wickham, and thanks for listening to the Park Hill Church podcast. Park Hill Church is a community, and we're committed to practicing the way of Jesus together in San Diego. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and so in the spirit of the season, we decided to do something special with the podcast. Since Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, in addition to a new Advent teaching series, we're also going to do some pretty cool interviews where we get to hear from some of the most important people in our church, hands down, the kids. So all through Advent, before each sermon, we'll catch up with some Park Hill kids and ask them questions about their favorite Christmas stories and traditions, and we'll hear what Advent means to them in their words. It'll be super fun. So in a few minutes, we'll get to this week's teaching. But first, give it up for Park Hill Kids. How are you, Brayden? Good. Oh my goodness. How are you? Good. Where are you sitting? Um, in this chair. Yeah? Where's this the chair? The Christmas tree is right next to us. Oh, the Christmas tree is right next oh, to you. Ornaments okay. on it. I can see that. Did you help put on those ornaments? Yeah. Yes. I like that Christmas tree ornament on the Christmas tree. Thank you. Yeah. And then what's behind you? Those? Oh, stockings. Stockings. That's pretty cool. Do you remember the stockings from last year? Yeah. Wow. How old are you, Brayden? Four. What? And you remember last year? That's pretty good memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Brayden. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about Christmas and maybe a little bit about Advent. Is that okay? Yeah. What's your favorite thing that's going to come at Christmas time? Presents. Presents. <laughs> that's awesome. Is there a certain present that you are maybe hoping for? Uh, yeah. What is it? A remote control helicopter. Oh my gosh. That's pretty high tech. That's amazing. Brayden, I also wanted to ask you, is there a Christmas story in the Bible that you like? Yeah. Really? Can you tell me about it? The angels come to sing that song to those shepherds, and then the shepherds go to baby Jesus, and then the star leads those people in the camels, and then the people give the presents to baby Jesus. Yeah. That's amazing. I wonder what angels sound like when they sing. I don't know. I don't either. I don't think anybody does. <laughs> What's one more good thing about Christmas? That we get to have a Christmas tree. That's amazing. We just got a Christmas tree yesterday. Oh. What about a food? Do you like a Christmas food? Yeah. Mashed potatoes with marshmallows in it. And the sweet potatoes are mashed. Oh, sweet potato. That is such a good... Christmas meal. I can't even handle it. And Brayden, I have one more question. What do you know about Advent? It's when you're waiting for Christmas or you're waiting for baby Jesus to come. That's right. Advent is a time of waiting. Do you think waiting is easy or hard? Easy, easy to wait. Wow, you're more mature than I am. I am impatient. But you think waiting is easy? No. Yeah, waiting can be hard sometimes. But you're right. Advent is for waiting. Good job. Well, Brayden, I really like talking to you today. <laughs> I like talking to you too. I hope you have a Merry Christmas, and I hope to see you at church on Sunday. 
you. Okay, bye. Bye. Welcome to Park Hill Church, everybody. Uh, my name is Evan, and it is wonderful to see you and to sing with you. Um, so good morning. My wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church with a fantastic team. There's the Persleys there, and oh, there's Sandy, and my son, my tall son. Um, but yeah, uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent. What is Advent? Yeah, uh, well, that's amazing. That's, that's, you guys, I love the 11 a.m. Uh, Ad, Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve. So we're taking a break from our First Corinthians series to, in order to lean into Advent as a community. Uh, with this four-part series, we're calling Advent Justice. So we'll be hearing from different voices within our church community. Dan Braga, pastor of Neighbors Church, he'll be here next Sunday to unpack some of this. Tanika Wyatt, our very own, uh, one of our pastors of marriage and family, she's going to be unpacking the next Sunday. Um, all around this idea of Advent justice. So before we get into today's teaching, which I'm thrilled about, my kids and I were talking about it over breakfast yesterday, getting pumped about it. But before we get to this, why a series on uh, Advent justice? Why? Because first of all, Advent is a time of actively waiting for God to break in and heal the brokenness in us and around us. I say actively waiting because it's not just sitting back passively. It's acting upon who God has revealed himself to be while also longing for him to come and make all things new. Uh, yes, Advent is a time for joyful anticipation. When you think of Advent, I don't know, I grew up in all Advent really was, for me, because I didn't grow up Roman Catholic, was like little little holes you punch in a calendar and you get chocolates behind them or whatever. Uh, the Advent calendar. Uh, yes, Advent is a time of joyfully anticipating the coming of Christ into our world, the light for our darkness. But we're on this side of Christmas Eve right now. And this anticipation, it feels less like celebration and more like waiting. And my guess is most of us as children of a high-speed info age of instant entertainment, most of us are not great at waiting. Everything in our culture is arranged to make sure we don't have to wait for stuff. So Advent feels very countercultural because to us, waiting feels too much like doing nothing. Waiting isn't really our thing, right? Maybe for some of us, waiting feels too much like lamenting, which is actually closer to the heart of Advent. If you're not part of a historically underprivileged or oppressed group, chances are corporate lament feels foreign to you. So if you grew up like me in a, in a worshiping in a church, in a, like a white dominant culture church, corporate lament probably feels strange to you. It does for me. A lot of us don't have a category for hopeful grieving as a community. Holy anger in our worship, this, this idea of actively waiting for God to step in. For sure, I do want to say we all individually experience grief, of course, and we individually lament personal tragedy for sure. But in my 30 years of church background, my upbringing basically taught me that grieving is mainly done alone while celebrating is done together. 
Um, there were exceptions to this, of course, but for the most part, in general, in the church culture I grew up in, corporate lament was not a part of our shared worship language. But if you're from a traditional black church or Korean church or one of many Hispanic churches in America, then you likely have a long history of community outcry in your worship culture. And lament feels more like a language to you, shared in community. Corporate lament is a familiar territory for many Christians who, if we're honest, look a lot different than a lot of us here. Um, so we, here's the deal. For, for most of us then, we especially can't lose sight of Advent right now. Otherwise, we risk collapsing into Christmas consumerism and everything just becomes like a jolly holiday or whatever. But Advent is different from Christmas. It carries a strong, ancient longing for God to step in and heal. We stand in line with prophets and entire cultures uh, that came out of the scriptures, longing for God to bring justice first to us in our hearts and change us, and then through us to the rest of the world. And right now, 2020 is coming to an end, and <laughs> the entire planet, you guys, is hyper aware that the world has gone wrong. Like, there's there's wrong stuff going on. Justice lies dead in the streets. We need healing. Everyone everywhere longs for renewal. Earlier this month, record numbers of Americans showed up to vote for the leader they feel will best address the injustices of our time. And I would argue it's because millions of us have misplaced Messiah levels of hope in these human leaders. And sadly, this seems to be just as true inside the church as out the, outside the church. And so it's Advent, which means we need to relearn hope-filled lament. At Advent, we actively wait, not passively, but actively by working for God's healing and justice together, again, first in us and then through us to the world. So this series, Advent Justice, it's an opportunity, you guys, uh, for us to lament well and to let the song of our ancient family rise up in our soul. How long, O oh Lord? How long until you establish your name in all the earth? How long till every knee bows and every tongue confesses the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? How long till your good judgment cleanses the world of every sad thing and heals us once and for all? And then don't forget the last part of the song. But for now, Lord, may your spirit send us to carry your name as a force of good in the world carry your name. And this is why Advent Justice, this is why we're doing this series, which brings us to today's teaching. Okay, first teaching of the series. So you're opening your Bibles to Genesis 18. We are going to be trucking through the Torah, okay, going through so many passages in the Old Testament, okay? I don't know. First teaching of the series here, Genesis 18. Many Advent sermons start with gospel stories about shepherds and angels and busy motels or whatever. But what, what does that have to do with justice? What does a Christmas story have to do with justice? A ton, actually. But to understand how, we need to see how Israel's longing for justice and hope, it started way before the shepherds and angels. And this is the moment, which is cool. We have a privilege right now. 
as Jesus followers in, tw in the 21st century, we get to peek over Jesus's shoulder and read after him. We get to read the Bible Jesus read, which is our Old Testament. It's fantastic that we have this joy and privilege. Um, so from the earliest pages of the story, way back in Genesis, the main point of the plot was that Yahweh, the one true creator God, was choosing a specific family who would carry his name, carry his name. In other words, represent him well to the rest of humanity and the world. That's what it meant. So what we're gonna do right now is pray once again that the Holy Spirit would fill us to receive from God and be changed. Heavenly Father, we wanna carry your name. We wanna know what that means. We wanna know what it means to be filled with the Spirit and sent by the Creator God to do God's character out in the world. Show us what this means. Give us a vision for it this Advent. The world needs to hear you. The world needs to see you. So come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so right here, Genesis 18, starting in verse 18, we get this in Yahweh's own words. Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He's talking about the first family of faith, Abraham. And he says this, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh, the Lord, by what? Yeah, you guys are participating. This is gonna be fun. There's a lot of participation in this, in this teaching. So by doing the way of the Lord, yes, by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised. So right off the bat, review question from 10 seconds ago, in Yahweh's own words, what is the way of Yahweh? Doing righteousness and justice, fantastic. Here's where we come to a super important part for Jesus followers. In the Bible, God's name, God's character, and God's way are synonyms. I'll say it again. In the scriptures, when you, when you read through the scriptures, when, when something is in the name of God, or uh, his name, his character, and his way that we follow, they're all synonyms. In the world of the Bible, a person's name is synonymous with their character, and this is especially true of God, Yahweh Elohim. All through the Old Testament, Yahweh's name is a synonym for doing righteousness and justice. So here, here we go. I am not a fan of using Greek and Hebrew words in Sunday sermons at all. Uh, it's like a pet peeve of mine, except for when it super matters a whole lot with a couple of words. And these are, in my opinion, a couple of those words. Can you say sedekah? That's righteousness. And here's the word for justice. Can you say mishpat? That's a fun one. So sedekah and mishpat, righteousness and justice. In American culture, what does it mean to be a righteous person? Typically, what comes to mind? If you're a righteous guy. Like usually it's like a decent guy who like follows the rule, upstanding Atticus Finch type person, you know? Like just a good guy. Um, and justice in American culture is what? Bad guy getting what he deserves, getting punished, right? That's justice typically. Um, we think of criminal justice. But it's different. It's more, it's, it's, there's a greater depth and a greater 
uh, a bigger definition thing happening in the scriptures around these two words. In the Bible, righteousness isn't just, uh, it's not a good guy who does the rules. Sedekah or righteousness means working in community to make all relationships with God, other self, and rest of creation well-ordered and flourishing. And someone who does righteousness goes for shalom in all four of those relationships with God, with others, with with myself, with the rest of creation. I'm working for the flourishing and well-orderedness of those relationships. That is the biblical definition of doing righteousness. And justice in the Bible means inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the worthless person in society, especially the widow, orphan, stranger, and poor. So it's a far more robust definition than just a bad dude getting what he deserves. It's involved in that in a small way, for sure, because who knows how the poor have become poor in certain circumstances. But doing justice means inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the worthless person. That's justice. So did I say that? That's justice, which means what is injustice? Injustice means keeping my stuff for my own comfort in the scriptures. Keeping my stuff for my own comfort is the biblical definition of injustice. So for Yahweh, doing righteousness and justice, synonymous with his name, that means Yahweh's people are the ones who disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, especially the poor and vulnerable, so that all relationships are rightly ordered, full of shalom, God, other self, rest of creation. This is what it looks like when God's character has its way in the world. This is the meaning of Yahweh's name. This is Yahweh's own character. And from the earliest pages of the Bible, God shows this to Abraham. And from that moment on, God's people, Abraham's family, that's the history of the Bible, Abraham's family history. Abraham's family are the ones who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. Now, fast forward from Abraham to Moses. We're whiplash right now. We're going through it. Location, Mount Sinai. Turn to Exodus. Uh, let's, Let's actually go to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. And hold your finger there. We'll get there. Abraham's family is now a huge group of ex-slaves. They're free and they're forming their national identity. How does Yahweh help them form their identity? What does he give them? Starts with an L. I think I heard it. Laws. He gives them laws. Right. Like you do when you're forming a nation. And so, does any... God calls the first 10 the 10 words. We know them as the 10 commandments. Uh, Does anyone know the first command? No other gods. Excellent. Great. Check. No other gods. Good idea for a one true God worshiper to do. No other gods. Um, Second command. What is it? Yeah, no man-made images. No graven idols. Now, here's here's the tricky part. What's the third command? Shout it out. Spunky. Be spunky. Okay, that's good. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Yes, that's how the ESV says it. Someone at the last gathering said, don't say the Lord's name in vain. And I, and I, I had a moment with that person because that's what I grew up hearing for sure, like all my life. And, and I interpreted that to mean, uh, don't use God or Jesus as a cuss word, right? Um, but that's not what it says. 
Uh, it doesn't say don't speak the name in vain. It says don't take, or the Hebrew, sen- the, the, that's the English, we lose the sense. The Hebrew is actually don't carry the name in vain, or don't bear the name like an armor bearer, same word in the Hebrew, or like Aaron the priest, who literally eight chapters later bears the name of Yahweh across his forehead. Why did he do that? So that he could represent Yahweh to the people and show the people how good God is through his service and through his sacrifice and through his life. So God's like, don't bear my name in vain. In other words, the heart of this for us and for the people of God throughout history, as people who carry his name, don't misrepresent his character. Don't separate his name from his character. Don't you dare. Because he has a heart for the poor and the marginalized and the people that he is out to love and to bring in. Do not get in the way of that process. Be a part of it. Rejoice as a part of it. I went to a private Christian school in the 80s and we inherently understood this concept. So whenever a kid did something bad, what would all the other kids say at a Christian school in like third grade? You, you, you do something bad and then what? You call yourself a Christian, right? That was like the worst insult. And my dad was a pastor and I was like, you're pastor's kid, it was double. You call yourself a Christian. Obviously, you know, there's a culture of gross legalism around that. But the point is, even kids get this, you guys. Don't separate the name from the character. Are you a God person? Yes. Then represent him well. Why? Because the poor and the vulnerable matter to this God. Therefore, they matter a lot to God's people. So Yahweh people, that's us, in Jesus, we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of the oppressed, vulnerable, poor, widow, fatherless, list goes on. The worthless person in society. One scholar, uh, Old Testament scholar in Canada, Carmen Joy Imes, great book she wrote called Bearing God's Name. Um, she uh, compares carrying God's name to having an invisible tattoo that we all have, marked permanently as God's people, but visible to the surrounding nations through our character. Our character lights up the name. And if there's a discrepancy, what's that called? People sniff it a mile away. Hypocrisy. No one likes hypocrisy. We have this innate drive for integrity, especially in others, right? With us, we like grace. With others, we want integrity. Um, So this is how the story is unfolding. God's like, represent my name well. And as this Mount Sinai story unfolds, there's this powerful moment in Numbers chapter six. I'm just gonna read it over you. You'll recognize it immediately. It's where God speaks his name and his character over his people. He says this, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you're supposed to bless the Israelites. You ready for it? Tell me if you know this verse. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. How many of you have heard that before? Awesome. If you've ever been to Park Hill Church, you've heard it before. We end almost every gathering with that blessing. We speak over one another. But listen, I want to say I've been reading the Bible pretty seriously for 30 years. 
I'll be 40 in May. And I grew up in the church and read it a ton. And I've never, this is one of those moments, I came across a simple surface level observation I have missed all my life. Um, It's like, how have I never seen this? One of those right in front of your face things. And uh, I saw it for the first time this week. After that blessing, Lord bless you, keep you. Look at the next verse. If you uh, go to number six, verse 27, he, he says, in this way, you will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. I never realized that that benediction symbolically places Yahweh's own name and character on his people as a claim of ownership and marks us out for doing his character in the world. That's what that benediction is for. It's not just a happy ending to a sermon. It's not just like this, oh, we feel great, bless you, keep you. It is a marking and a declaration of ownership and a renewal of vow. I will be your God, he says to us, and you will be my people. And the world will see what I'm like through you because I'm blessing you with my face. He says, with my face two times. We wanna see God's face. Just like we wanna see each other's faces right now. You see my face. I wish I could see all your faces right now. I was just talking to a scientist in between the last gathering and this gathering here. And he's like, a human being is radically stimulated by facial recognition so much. If you wanna see like cortisol just spike in your body and you get anxious, look at a human's face when it's angry. It'll make you more anxious and more scared than if you saw news footage of a tsunami, is what he said. But God said, let let my face turn toward them. Let my face shine upon you. Two times he mentions his face in that short blessing. And by God's own face, by his own character, by his smile, we take on his name and we shine that same smile, that same justice and righteousness out towards others. Blessed to be a blessing. This is who we are. So incredible. Can we remember that every time we do that benediction here at Park Hill? Um, My goodness. But the story doesn't stop there. As the scriptures unfold, the focus shifts from Mount Sinai, one mountain, to Mount Zion. The center of the Bible's gravity shifts over to Mount Zion. And, And Zion is special. Why? One reason. Yahweh chooses to put his name there. That's it. He calls it the place for my name. We know Mount Zion today as Jerusalem, where the temple would stand, and more importantly, where the Son of God would die and rise. Very important spot, (laughs) okay? So Yahweh, brought to you by Alaska Airlines. So Yahweh starts prepping his people for Mount Zion way back in Deuteronomy 12. Now we're in Deuteronomy 12, where your finger is. And Yahweh says this in verse four. He says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, speaking of the pagans who worship other gods, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for a dwelling. And then he says, to that place you must go. And then verse 11, then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you're to bring everything I command you, burn offerings and sacrifices, tithes, gifts, all the choice things, right? So God wants the identity of his people to orbit this place 
to center around this place. He wants this place to show off how good God is to the nations. God has plans for this place. He wants his name to be represented there. Why? Why? Because God wants his whole family together in one place to see what happens when God's dream comes true. When God's dream comes true, here's the vision in Yahweh's own words. Turn over four pages to Deuteronomy 16. It's amazing. Deuteronomy 16, 11, he says this, and rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. It's a command to rejoice. Okay, how do we rejoice? Like this, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, and the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. Yahweh's intentions are crystal clear, you guys. Where God's name is worshiped, the immigrant is welcomed. Where God's name is worshiped, the fatherless are embraced. Where God's name is worshiped, women are given equal honor. This is representing Yahweh's name well. This is the plan for the place he puts his name. And it's a command to rejoice, you guys. It's not just a command to do this stuff. It's a command to rejoice together with the poor and vulnerable as one family. This is a rejoice command. And it's a powerful sneak preview of the final day, Revelation 7, 9, and 10, where John, the, the revelator, they call him, in the last book of the Bible, he sees a glimpse of a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicultural family of God rejoicing around the throne of the Lamb. And I'll read it to you. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice. This sounds like a rejoicing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's our future. Do you see the picture? Picture it. Picture that scene. Envision it. What does it look like? What do you see in your mind? If you're imagining everyone with the same hairdo, then you have the wrong picture, right? It, there'll be diversity here like we've never experienced before. And the important thing to realize around that throne, every culture and tribe is seen, not erased. No ethnicity is erased here. The text says nothing about a primary language and yet they're all crying out in one voice. It's amazing. Every language and people and culture is fully seen and no single culture is secondary to any other. This is what happens when Yahweh's name is worshiped in the place of his character. All are dignified, honored, and embraced by the people of God's character. So you guys, as the church, 2020, our call is to reflect that same character right now in the present while at the same time, we must learn to lament that we still have a long way to go. And there are plenty of places where his character is not being seen. And there's plenty of places where his character is being misrepresented, including in our own 
quiet hearts. So what do we do? What, what do we, where do we go from here? Like, is there another example we can look to to see how this fleshes out? And I, I wanna point you to one more Old Testament example uh, before we land on Jesus and eat and drink the bread and the cup. Um, do you guys know the story of how the temple foundation, the place for God's name, do you know, how the sto- how, do you know the story of how that land was purchased? Just learned about it recently. Uh, it's one of those things you just miss. It's the, it's a, the last paragraph of 2 Samuel or something like that, you know? And, and so uh, it's incredible. 2 Samuel 24. If you can turn there, it's the last spot in the Old Testament we'll go. 2 Samuel 24. Told you we're trucking. So here it goes. David wants to build an altar. And so here, here's what happens. On that day, Gad, who was a prophet, went to David and said to him, go build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord commanded through Gad. When Araunah looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Okay, picture that. You have Araunah, you know who he is? He's an indigenous Canaanite, a conquered people, an occupied native. That's Araunah. And he bows, he's bowing before the great conqueror, King David, who's coming to claim land, right? Not just any land, but land to worship Yahweh in the name. So so picture that. And then verse 21, Araunah said, why has my Lord the King come to his servant? And David answered, to buy your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord. Verse 22, Araunah said to David, let my Lord the King take whatever he wishes. Offer it up. Here, oxen for the burnt offering and here a threshing sledge as an ox, all these things, your majesty, I give it all to you. Araunah also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. So you can almost hear the, the vulnerability in his voice. He's, gro- he's almost groveling now and fully expecting King David to act like the conqueror that he is. David, the colonizer, could have taken this land from Araunah at no cost. But watch what happens next. Verse 24. But the king replied to Araunah, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to Yahweh, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Come on, David does not separate Yahweh's name from Yahweh's character right now. David is a man after God's own heart, honoring this person who's in a completely vulnerable, literally occupied state. Now look at the next part, final final verse. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen. He paid 50 shekels for it. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land. Okay, this, you guys, is true Yahweh worship. True Yahweh worship, (laughs) where God's heart for the outsider is on full display. It's on David's sleeve right now. Truly a man after God's own heart. And, And by the way, here's the point that I was getting to earlier. This became the Temple Mount. 
2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, don't need to turn there, but it specifically says this land became the land God chose to have Solomon build the entire Israelite temple and show off to the whole world what I'm looking like. So literally the place for Yahweh's name, the famous temple of Israel was literally built on a foundation of justice for the occupied foreigner. This is the heart of Yahweh. It's literally at the foundation of Israel's existence, you guys. This is who we are because who Yahweh is. This is what it looks like to carry Yahweh's name well. This is why a thousand years after David, Jesus comes up to the Temple Mount and what does he do when he sees what's going on? He trashes the camp, yeah. Jesus, Jesus trashes the place, turns over tables, drives out everyone that's buying and selling. Why? Because the people of Yahweh, the people of the name, were price gouging the poor and keeping non-Jewish people away from Yahweh, Israel was carrying the name in vain. God's people were separating God's name from God's character. Hypocrisy gone wild. But in that tragic moment, there was really good news. Even though Israel failed finally, they failed to represent Yahweh well. The good news, the hope of Advent was brewing. Jesus himself was becoming the true place for God's name in the world. The epicenter of God's showing off moved from that Temple Mount onto the man Jesus. Literally says, Jesus is the word made flesh and the word of God tabernacled, templed, among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We see him now. Jesus is the place of Yahweh's character in its fullness. And here's that famous verse we read every Christmas, right? Matthew 1. Where, where Matthew, <laughs> Matthew says, all of this took place to fulfill What's all of this? Well, before Matthew 1, he says literally Abraham genealogy to Jesus, <laughs> like the whole history of the Bible. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's here. We see him. That's Jesus' prophetic name, God with us. And it's bursting with hope because everyone in Israel knew what God with us means. They're like, if this baby has that name, God with us, then that means he's the one who will finally perfectly carry the name for all of us. That's the job of the Messiah, the true priest who truly bears the name without fail. Jesus himself has become the new temple, the new spot we go to be with God. Jesus himself has become the place we can go to rejoice together. We're all the poor, vulnerable, sick, oppressed. We're all, it's all of us now. And we all go to find our healing and our restoration in Jesus, in his presence. And how do we get there? How do we come to Jesus? He said, be baptized in the name. Confess me as Lord, be baptized in the name. You come down and are immersed in water and you confess that Jesus is Lord, the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the name. So you're baptized in the name and you become included in the family of God and not just included in the family, but empowered to be sent out as his family not just included, but you're empowered, you guys. Come on. 
And as we go and carry his name well, the spirit makes us more and more faithful as we go. It's incredible. If you're like walking by and you, uh, you're not part of like, I, you hear this news. It's insane. Like God invites all humanity to bear his name, be included in the forever family, and then be sent out with his love to become more loving. Like, whoa, how, how is that not the best news on earth? And, and now, my friends, so now more than ever, the world needs to see this character. If God is that good, it makes me wonder, what is the perception out there of the world in here, of the church in here? Plenty of surveys have been done to measure um, the perceptions of non-church people, of those who are churched, and we could get into those, but we're not going to. Suffice it to say, what if, like what if, amidst all the noise about Christians being known for being too political or whatever, and amidst all the headlines about one well-known Christian leader after another caving into adultery or power abuse, all, everyone, people know Christians by these famous mistakes or whatever. What if, Park Hill, we, what if we were known for serving the foster care system? Like in the middle of all that, we were known, like Sandy was like, oh yeah. What if we were known for adoption? Like, oh my goodness, yeah, Jesus followers are crazy. They take people in off the street. What if we were known for peacefully standing with black and brown lives who are crying out against the racial injustice they experience? What if we were known for that? What if we were known for generosity? What if we were known for humility? Like love, joy, peace, patience is what we were known for. Known for representing Yahweh's righteousness and justice. In San Diego, what if we were known for that? I believe that can and will happen by the power of God's spirit working through you and me in community, not alone, in community. I believe that'll happen. And as the bell ominously tolls, I was, I was about to turn on the final thing, which I believe, I, well, I think I'm the problem. I realize I'm the problem. I don't always carry God's name well, and I often carry his name the worst to people I claim to love the most. If I'm honest. <laughs> so good. I don't know about you, but 2020 brought out the worst in me. Between like lockdowns, pandemic, political upheaval, grieving systemic racism, friends moving away, and medical tragedy in the family, with all this, it's safe to say 2020 has exposed me as a mixed bag, okay? I'm a mixed bag. Sometimes I carry his name well, more often than I'd like to say, I do not. There have been some powerful kingdom moments, but there have been just as many when I've needed to repent, call counselors, therapists, seek accountability for my temper, anxiety, unloving speech, you guys, and I've been so frustrated. Like, why can't I get past the same crazy cycles? Why? The same old junk, I'm a mixed bag. I carry him well sometimes and I misrepresent him a whole lot of other times. And the story of Philip in the Gospel of John has brought me so much encouragement and we'll just segue into communion right now. <laughs> Philip's feeling a little like a mixed bag and he says in chapter 14, verse eight, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. 
that's I feel like that's me. Like, just do a miracle. Like, show up, and I'll change, and everything will be good. Just do a miraculous change. Do something. Step in. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after, even after I've been with you so long, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus a mixed bag? No, he's like pure character, pure Yahweh's brand of goodness, like all the way down into his blood. Jesus is not a mixed bag, not at all. Does Jesus carry God's name well? Yes. And he said, if you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father. But watch what happens next. Verse 12, very truly I tell you, he's talking to Philip, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. (laughs) That's great. That's a lot of confidence Jesus has in us for believing in him. But then he goes one step further and he says, and they will do even greater things than these. And that's when I'm like, I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I know people debate what that means out there, but one thing everyone agrees on, Jesus is not saying we will do worse things. He's saying you'll do greater things. But for sure we know at least he's not saying we'll do worse. So, so whatever this means, Jesus has confidence in his followers that by the power of his spirit, we can do what Jesus did. And then he says, because guys, I'm going to the Father. Like he's leaving, which makes me go, wow, he has a lot of confidence. (laughs) He's physically bailing so that obviously the spirit would come. And that's the point. That's the point. Verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it, Jesus says. Who will do it? Is it me? Is it you? No, Jesus will do it. Jesus will do it because he's identifying himself with the spirit. Jesus will do it. Jesus believes in you because Jesus believes in the power of his spirit. That's the reason. He believes in the power of his spirit through you. Jesus believes that if you ask anything, quote, in my name, remember what's that? In alignment with his character, synonym. When your prayers are in alignment with the goodness of God and you see how God is revealed from Genesis to Revelation, you see how he's revealed in community and through the bread and cup and reading and prayer and fasting, all these things, and you're living immersed in his character, you can ask according to his character and Jesus is like, done. That's a promise, he says. Pray for justice. He's all about it. He's gonna do it through the church. Pray for peace. He's like, yep, I'll do, I'm in, that's my character. Pray that you'll be compassionate. Lord, help me make, make me compassionate. Guess what? The answer is yes to that. <laughs> like Jesus wants to make you slow to anger. Yes, help me forgive. He's like, I will do that. I will do that. Are you praying in my name? Are you living in my character? Are you burying my name? Then it's a promise. Remember that. Whenever you stop, take a breath and pray in line with what Jesus is like. Jesus says to that prayer, I will do it. This is why Jesus believes in you, in a sense, because he believes in the power of his spirit through you. He believes in the power of the spirit through the church, not just you alone, but with your community, to your neighborhood, to the foster care system, through Royal Family Kids, through this uh, giving campaign that we're doing. We've, in just the last couple of weeks, first week of our giving campaign for the foster care system, Royal Family Kids, we, you guys raised five grand. First week, 
And now it's at eight grand, 22 grand left. And we have sponsored 30 kids to be present and accounted for and loved and served and mentored and brought in to the love of Jesus. So this is the spirit through the church. You can even serve and sign up and get training and go and be a part of the team that loves these kids in a system where they learn by proxy to gauge whether they're ever actually wanted. And, and, and we can actually be the ones who want and see and show them the face of God. May the Lord bless them as he's blessed us. And so this Advent, as we journey toward Christmas Eve in 2021, can we, can we carry the name? That's what we do. Every time we come to the bread and cup, we're renewing our vow to carry the name and represent God well in San Diego. So we're gonna sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is a lament because there are places in the world where his name is not being carried or even misrepresented, and we lament that. And we learn to weep together over that, where there's injustice and sad division, like the, the lyric in that song, bid our sad division cease and be thyself our king of peace. Let's sing this song, let's stand together, and then after this song, we'll eat and drink the bread and cup. Heavenly Father, would you send your spirit now? Thank you that you've given us a calling to carry your name. And we can't do it without your spirit. And yet with your spirit, you say you will do it. So we give ourselves to that process to rejoice together as one family, one big, broken, being healed family.